chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 12. <coughs> in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore clothing of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sudacees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now, the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary. But the chaff, uh, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Ooh, that's dark. Um. Hi everybody, good morning. I'm Tim. I have been very uh, sort of depressed the last week because of this weather. And I've just been like staring at this um, sun lamp the last day. I would have to say it actually has been very helpful. Damn. All right, so this uh, marks for us the second week of Advance. Some of you, um, may know what Advent is, and you may also realize in that case that we are kind of jumping the gun here a little bit. This is technically the first week of Advent, but uh, we do things a little bit different. Should we light a candle, an Advent candle? Sure. Do we not do that? Do you have a thing? Yeah, should we light two? Yeah, we should light two of them, yes. <laughs> so, uh, for example, our Christmas service is actually on the 15th, uh, so I hope you can make that. That's where we'll talk about Christmas, and we'll sing Christmas carols and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we are doing Advent a bit early. If you don't know what Advent is, fear not. You, you're not weird in any way. I actually still don't really know what it is, but uh, basically it just marks the four weeks before Christmas in which you're supposed to sort of uh, reflect upon the arrival of of Christ or the Messiah. Advent is uh, simply a word that comes from the Latin Adventus, which means arrival. And so uh, people are, during this time generally remember Christ's birth and in the tradition of Advent are also waiting in anticipation for the quote-unquote second coming as well. And then on top of that, we also sing Advent carols and we light some candles, again, for each week. Um, and yada, 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 basically. <laughs> Advent. Personally, 
Personally, I like to think of Advent just really as about preparation. It's about getting ready for an arrival, right? Uh, Suffice to say, in the in the Christian tradition, at least, uh, Christmas is a big deal, right? And like a lot of things in our lives, there are big deals. We we have to get ready for them. They demand us doing something in preparation, right? Like a wedding or a big trip overseas or something, um, or like when your parents are coming to visit you in the city and you have to throw away all your drug paraphernalia and um, clean, up, clean up all your crap, right? We get ready for the arrival of big things. Uh, my brother just had a baby. And so I'm an uncle for the first time. People ask me what that's like. And um, honestly, I, I have no idea because I met this baby like two weeks ago and uh, she didn't do anything. Um, she just looked drunk the whole time. She couldn't even look at me. So I, I have not, not yet developed a sense of uncleness, whatever that may be. Uh, but before, my arri- before her arrival, uh, my brother took my old room in the house and he painted it a new color. He got rid of my bed, um, just basically erased me from, from memory. Uh, I'm not jealous, but I'm just telling you the truth here. Uh, in any case, again, sort of uh, preparation for a big arrival uh, that we do in, the, in a lot of ways, right? And sometimes, in a weird way, in a somewhat mysterious way, uh, the arrival does not happen unless we actually are ready for it, unless we actually prepare. Right? Sometimes our preparation is a thing that triggers the possibility of other things. Last week uh, at our welcome table gathering, we focused on this idea of preparation. Uh, and we read this poem, Making the House Ready for the Lord by Mary Oliver. And I want to read it again today, just in case you weren't there, or if you were there, to remind you. So, it goes like this. Dear Lord, I have swept and I have washed, but still nothing is as shining as it should be for you. Under the sink, for example, is an uproar of mice. It is the season of their many children. What shall I do? And under the eaves and through the walls, the squirrels have not their ragged entrances, but it is the season when they need shelter, so what shall I do? And the raccoon limps into the kitchen and opens the cupboard, while the dog snores, the cat hugs the pillow, what shall I do? Beautiful is the new snow falling in the yard, and the fox who is staring boldly up the path to the door. And still I believe you will come, Lord. You will when I speak to the fox, the sparrow, the lost dog, the shivering sea goose know that really I'm speaking to you whenever I say, as I do all morning and afternoon, come in, come in. So this poem, to me at least, is about a preparation or an idea of preparation, but Mary Oliver, of course, cleverly turns the conditions of, for preparation upside down, right? We, uh, to get one's house ready for the Lord is not to make things uh, spotless and clean, and putting on appearances for people, right? But it's to be welcoming and hospitable to those who need a home, who need sustenance, some shelter, some warmth, right? The idea of welcoming God is mixed in with welcoming in other things. And for Mary Oliver, I think she would say that God is in those very things. This is the kind of home that God shows up for. In our reading for today, uh, the words of John the Baptist paint a bit of a different picture of preparation, right? At least at first glance. This story takes place um, 
right before Jesus begins his adult work, his ministry, and John is trying to get people ready. And he is harsh, dude. He's not mince words, right? Repent, he yells. Of the coming Messiah, he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and, wheat, and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chafe he will burn with unquenchable fire, right? Very different than tenderly feeding injured raccoons, right? What is worth knowing and remembering, though, is that John is a prophet, and prophets, as they are typically depicted in the Bible, are very strange and very harsh people, right? And prophets and just prophecy in general, I think, are, are a bit weird to us in our modern context, yet the Bible is full of these things, and these things were incredibly important in ancient religious life. In the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament, uh, some of our most famous biblical characters are prophets, right? We have Elijah, Isaiah, again now to John the Baptist, and some would even say Jesus is a prophet as well. And yet, when we hear and read these people what, and what they said, I think we often fundamentally misunderstand what is actually going on. Right? First of all, we think of prophecy as a sort of fortune-telling, future-telling, right? Like poem reading or tarot or... Enneagram in the worst way. I'm just sorry. It's in a running joke that I hate the Enneagram. But uh, critical analysis of the biblical prophets actually tell us something a little different, right? First of all, we can categorize prophecy into different things, right? There's um, omen, the omen, omen. Why am I saying that so weird? Omen, omen. Thank you. Omen. We got the omens. Um, there's, there are those, yes, but more prevalent actually is the role of messenger and mediator, one who uh, delivers messages from God to the people and one who speaks to God on behalf of the people. We can complicate this idea of prophecy as uh, merely uh, future fortune-telling if we look at the way that these prophecies were actually written down and handed, handed to us, right? The prophetic text of the Old Testament uh, we don't really know how they came together, but uh, what most people can agree on is that most of them were written by a, uh, a lot of different people, stitching together pieces of prophecies to make a book. And some parts of that contained words from uh, who we might consider to be the actual writer, like someone like Isaiah, but others would write their own ideas, their own prophecies, using the name of the prophet to give their ideas weight, uh, which is actually an extremely common thing in the ancient world, right? A lot of the epistles that we attribute to Paul in the New Testament, most scholars think weren't actually written by Paul, but the person was like, I'm Paul, because you won't listen to me unless I say I'm Paul, right? So dating these texts is another issue. Um, like I just said, in some ways, the gospel texts uh, we know were written much later than the events they describe, from a few decades to hundreds of years, over 100 years. And this is also true for texts in the Old Testament, which means that Prophetic writers would often know what was going to happen before they would uh, write the thing. So it's easy to seem pretty like on point when you're writing in uh, retrospect. So you could see all this as a kind of uh, act of deception and duplicity. But again, we need to look at the goal of prophecy from the point of view of the people who are doing it. I would say that the, uh, rather again than trying to predict the future, prophetic work is really about pointing out things 
where things are wrong and getting people to try to change. Right? Prophecies often start with some sort of critique of society and then end with explaining why things turned out the way they did, giving meaning to events. So in other words, we need to change our idea of prophecy from Nostradamus to uh, our good friend who tells you when you're fucking up. Right? Do we know this? Right? We have this good friend, a good friend who does this for us, right? They tell you when you're fucking up. They tell you all the ways that the ways you have fucked up have brought forth your current situation. I'm a good friend to a lot of people. Because <laughs> I like doing this. Or at least I call myself a good friend. But the good friend label, or just like, you know, thinking about who gets this position, right? Uh, there's something really interesting about that question. I'm struck by the idea that prophecies are dependent on their messengers. And in, in biblical times, it seemed necessary that prophets would exhibit a certain set of qualities. Uh, one was probably just looking insane, right? Having a kind of wild, very wild vibe, just being out there. Uh, and they had to have this sort of uh, general way of being in order to be taken seriously, right? And they, they spoke very harshly because they had to speak to kings and also to crowds of people who thought that didn't want to hear what they had to say, right? A sort of, you know, uh, Brene Brown study of the difference between guilt and shame was not the concern of these biblical prophets. They did not care about that sort of thing. So in general, in order to be taken seriously as a prophet, you had to look and act the part. We, of course, do this all the time as well today, just with perhaps parameters switched around, right? The random person on the street corner uh, screaming about the future of our economy, we are like, uh, we, we don't take them seriously at all. Uh, the buttoned-up econ professor on TV or whatever, um, we we're like, oh, yeah, we'll listen to them, right? So the idea, idea of authority has actually been flipped in a weird way. I think it's worth investigating what the set of demands we have that we place on someone in order that they may be convincing agents of truth for us. I uh, linked in the email this Advent reflection written by a friend of mine, Celeste, and um, she's trying to analyze in this reflection the situation of Mary, Jesus' mother, uh, where she finds herself, you know, she's been, uh, if you don't know the story, she's just hanging out and then this angel comes, well, she's engaged, this angel comes and tells her, you're going to have a baby, it's going to be the savior of the world, um, and you're a virgin, the baby's just there, right? And I think, uh, you know, for me personally, the kind of historicity of the virgin birth, um, I have really, like, very small concern with, and Celeste, in her reflection also, uh, similarly talks about how little that is important to her. But what is troubling about this story, if we look at it in a certain light, is the way in which the prophetic testimony of a young woman goes unbelieved by people. Celeste ends her reflection with this. Joseph doesn't believe Mary, that she's a virgin. It takes an angel of the Lord to command him not to dismiss her, quietly or otherwise. God convinces Joseph to believe Mary. He wasn't inclined to do it on his own. Preachers often highlight Mary's marginalized social position. God chooses to become flesh through an unwed teenager. God chooses to become flesh through a girl whose people are living under occupation, through someone who is not a citizen of the empire. God also chooses to become flesh 
to be Emmanuel, God with us, through a woman whose testimony was not believed. Right? The question of who we believe to be prophetic around us uh, remains painfully relevant, and we see this uh, through the current lens of women speaking up about their experiences. Um, it's a question that we should not take lightly. Who do we believe? Who do you believe is capable of telling you hard truths about where you are and where you might end up? If Advent is about preparation, I think we should also ask ourselves, who uh, bids us to prepare? Who could, tell it, who could tell me such a thing, could tell me what I need to hear that would make me get ready? There's a real problem very Protestant problem, perhaps, where people talk about spiritual stuff in this very individualistic way. We talk of the preparation of, of Advent or uh, the repentance um, in Lent or something, or more, just more generally our spiritual journeys. We think of them as things we take on alone. You know, be personally introspective. Think on yourself. Change your ways. You can make it happen. But I think the idea of prophecy tells us a different story, right? The prophetic legacy and heritage of Christianity says that spiritual stuff relies on speaking or hearing very real truths from other people. Truths that push us to change, to see things differently, to get ready. These truths are communal, they're relational, they're collective. Asking ourselves who we believe, who is prophetic for us, who is our John the Baptist um, telling us to repent or change our hearts is really important. And it's not just about recognizing our good friends, but those like Mary that we have not previously believed. But that work, I would say, is only one side of the coin. Really, my challenge for us this Advent season would be um, to ask ourselves who we need to be prophets for. Right? Who needs to hear your prophetic voice? Where can you speak truth where you've previously been silent? Who are the people that depend on you to be messengers for them? Where can you be a mediator standing in the gap between people? Who needs to hear you say to them, get ready? So, I think what, um, has to be true for us as we travel these next couple weeks towards Christmas, right? We're preparing for the arrival of God, in a way, the arrival of a new world, the arrival of you know, the phrase, the kingdom of God, which to me just means uh, a place of justice and peace and love. And our own preparation is necessary for that moment, but our greater work is that we might be um, helping others to prepare. Something big is coming, but it only may come if we're willing to speak up. As John says, a voice cries out in the wilderness. I hope that this Advent season, that that voice would be ours. Amen.